Okay, uh, go ahead and wrap up in the next minute or two, and we'll get it back together. Anyone, anyone in the group share a project, a do-it-yourself thing that uh, anyone else found particularly impressive? No. Any spectacular failures? <laughs> no. Right. So you feel like you failed because you didn't get it right the first trip to the hardware store. No one ever like, yeah, no one ever tried to <laughs> replace a sink and fresh shut the water off or something. Somebody over here said that life is a do-it-yourself problem. Well, this is true. Way to spoil my point for the class, but yes. Um, There's little so, ones, big ones. Yeah. Last night I was, uh, I have a, I have a little uh, scooter, like a little moped, and about I was meeting some friends for dinner, and about halfway to dinner, my headlight quit working. Fortunately, it was still light out, but I had to do a little do-it-yourself last night, run to Walmart, because by the time dinner was over, it was not light anymore. You can't really, you know, headlights are important. So uh, we, had to, we had to do a little do-it-yourself, which was pretty, pretty fun, sort of last minute. But it was, it, it was nice, because it made me think about all of the things that we're going to be talking about tonight. And uh, so again, tonight, tonight we're going to move pretty quickly but I want to re-over-dramatically emphasize that uh, the point of tonight is not to get through all of my material. The point of tonight is to help you understand and engage with some theological concepts. So uh, we will go as quickly as we can as long as everyone understands. Don't feel bad about having to stop and ask for clarification or to re-go over a point or something like that. Because if you miss it, then we didn't accomplish the purposes that we all came here together for. So... Uh, again, if we don't finish everything tonight, we'll figure it out. we got some time somewhere else. So uh, don't feel bad about having to stop us. That being said, I'm going to move as quickly and clearly as I can unless you ask me to stop and go back over something. So, uh, And just remember that if you're confused, someone else is probably as well. So you should, you should be the brave and bold one and speak out for them. Do it for them, not just for yourself. Okay? <laughs> Uh, so let's start at the beginning where we began uh, the first week. We are talking about this class in terms of the idea that theology really means words about God. And so what we suggested in the first week is that if you've ever thought about God or talked about God, then that makes you some kind of a theologian. Not necessarily a good theologian, which is why we're all in this class together, right? But everyone... Uh, not just Christians, but everyone thinks about God and talks about God and thinks about all of the other kinds of questions that flow out of thinking and talking about God. Uh, so everyone does theology. Movies do theology. Music does theology. Uh, people do theology around the water cooler, at work, and stuff like that. So we, we're all doing theology everywhere. And what we are really particularly interested in is how do we do it well? And so as Nazarenes, we're part of a theological tradition called the Wesleyan Holiness Tradition. And we have four sources for doing our theology well, four sort of lines or fence posts that we use to kind of bound our theology and make sure we're doing good theology. We, we call it the Wesleyan quadrilateral because we're really creative. And uh, those four fence posts are scripture, the tradition of the church, uh, the tradition of our own particular denomination, but also the, the tradition of the whole church, 
uh, reason, our own logic and ability to understand things, right? Our ability to study uh, thing, things like archaeology and psychology and all, all of these sort of human things that we've systems of understanding and knowledge we built, we use them. And we use our own experiences and the experiences of other people. And all four of these things go into informing how we think about and talk about God in good, helpful ways. And so last week we saw how you really use all four of those even when you first when you start with just God himself. When we talk about the Trinity, uh, we saw that the Trinity is not a, a concept that's clearly elaborated in the Scripture anywhere. It's something that we took... What the scriptures taught us, you know, that there's one God, but also three, and we figured it out. We use our reason and our tradition and our experience uh, in conjunction with the scriptures to come up with a doctrine of the Trinity that says that that most basically God is self-giving love. And the reason that God exists in three persons who are also one deity is because that's how God can give himself to uh, to the other members of the Trinity, right, all three within that, and not have to need creation, not be obligated to create in order to be who he most fully is. And that was, that was all last week. So, uh, so this week we're going to talk about then what flows naturally out of that. We began with Genesis 1-1, in the beginning God, we didn't really get much further than that. All right, so now we're going to get to the whole created the heavens and the earth part. So tonight we're talking about creation and humanity. So what is this thing that we all live in, this, you know, this world, and what are we? What is our relationship to it? Why did God create? Why did God create us? What is our relationship to the world and to God? All of that. And so uh, we're just going to be building on what we did last week. And then, again, also continue. You'll hear me say lots of times, well, we'll be talking about that next week. Or we'll be talking about that in a couple of weeks. Because, again, this is all really interconnected. It's more like a spider web than a staircase. So uh, we can't really talk about But, you know, the last week we'll be talking about stuff we talked about this week. And some of it will make more sense and all that. So uh, there's three things, three big things that we're going to end up with tonight, hopefully, if I do a good enough job. Uh, one will be the value of creation and the nature of creation itself, like when we talk about the world. You know, what is it for? Why is it here? What is its value? Uh, another will be the nature of humanity. Who are we? What are, what are we? How should we understand ourselves? And then um, really along with that will be the necessity of us living in community. And then the last will be the goal of creation and humanity. You know, what's it all for? What are we for? What's creation for? So ready to go? Here we go. All right. Uh, we're going to start, we're actually going to back into creation a little bit, and I want to do that by talking about how uh, the original audience of Genesis would have understood the world, uh, how they formed their picture of God, and then, cause when, then when we get into looking at Genesis 1, uh, that will inform kind of what's behind that text and how, how they would have come to read it and how they would have understood it. So, uh, in the ancient world, everything was centered around the home. Okay, the, the, the family was the most basic unit of society, and everything sort of built up from there. So they understood, they understood all of their levels of society in terms of, uh, of starting with the home. Now, and when I talk about the home, usually we think of here uh, the nuclear family, right? The mom, dad, 2.5 kids, and the dog, right? Uh, basically, you have two generations living under one roof until the kids grow up and go away to college. You know, that's, that's sort of like the, the idea that we have. Uh, in the ancient world, they didn't have that. There was no such thing as a nuclear family. Uh, a house, what they would think of as a house, was the oldest living adult male, and then everyone who was related to him who was younger than him. 
Okay, so that would usually in those days because life expectancy was a lot shorter It was usually still only three generations So you could think about it as like grandpa and then all of his children and their wives and then all of their children So you had you know by the time you got to the third generation You might have 50 or 100 cousins running around that were all but they all were part of the same house and like literally For the most part they would all live in the same basic physical structure Like they, they would just keep building on rooms and building on rooms as they needed them So you'd have just these big sprawling homes and really in those days, a village, so you, we, we read that Abraham goes to the city of Sodom, right, for instance, right? And we think, oh, city, like city of Dayton. Okay, like that's, we have our idea of city. But really, like most, most villages were one extended family. What we would think of as extended family, they would say it was one, one house, really, the, the, the patriarch and then all of his descendants. That, was, that would usually comprise a whole village. Uh, and then if you had a really big village, that might be like two or three extended families that would all be living in one place together. And a city, so in a city, you're talking about like a handful of extended families who, who have found a place that has enough resources that they can all live together. So it's very small. Uh, the entire area of what we would call ancient Palestine, which today is like Israel, Palestine, and Jordan, so it's a pretty decent chunk of land. There were only about 150,000 people at the time of Abraham living in that whole region. Uh, now to compare that, today in, the, in those same three uh, countries that are today that region, there are 18 million people, okay? Even at the time of Jesus, there were about 1 million people. So we're talking about a very small, and, that, and, and 150,000 people is uh, if you go, you know, to the actual Dayton city limits, the people who actually live in the 45401 zip code, that's 150,000. It's actually more than 150,000 people. So you're talking about in the entire region of Palestine in the time of Abraham, you have less than or in just the city of Dayton right now. Okay, so a very uh, so that that's the, that's why we talk about an entire a village is just like a like one extended family, right? A few dozen people. A city is, you know. I don't know, 100 people or 200 people or something like that. But, you know, we think of a city as thousands and thousands and thousands of people. You have to be pretty good size to be a city. But these are very small. And, it's, and so that's how they could organize everything around just the home. Right? The patriarch was in charge. He called all of the shots. Uh, in a village where you might have two or three families, they had this thing called the city gate. And that was basically the city gate. Again, city is a very generous term. Uh, you had the place where the, the old guys just all hung out. And they would say, you know, by the time you're the patriarch, you don't really have to do anything anymore. Your job is, like, to be in charge, supervise. Uh, and so you would, they would sit at the city gate, and then that was where all of the legal things happened. Uh, again, legal is loose here because we're talking about just, like, family relationships. So if, you know, two people from opposing families had a dispute, they would take it to the city gate, which is the, the elders of these families, and then the elders would just make a decision. And whatever they decided, that was the law. I mean, again, we're talking about very tribal, very nomadic, very kind, you know, uh, very, very different from, from our world today. Whatever the elders said, that was what happened. And that was how, the, that was how their culture worked, how their culture uh, moved forward. And so um, all of the authority in, in the, the region was centered around the home. And it was all about the lineage and who was the oldest male. And all. I mean, that, that's why all of the, this way of these genealogies, right, all through the Old Testament, because it mattered to them who your family was. Everything was understood through the lens of the family. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Okay. If, if you can kind of wrap your head around that, even if, I mean, it's very different from our lives for the most part, uh, we can begin to understand. Now, when you, when you jump up to the national level, and again, it took a while. It took uh, several hundred years before we had anything resembling a nation. 
You know, at first you just had families who kind of grouped into tribes, who then, and then eventually the tribes kind of all grouped into a nation, but they always understood the nation even in terms of a house. So the scriptures talk about the house of David, right? And that meant the whole kingdom of Israel, because the way they saw the whole world was through this lens of the, the, that, that family system, that house system. So the king was seen as like the father of the whole nation. You, you see a lot of this language, right? And, and, and they're all his subjects, but they're also his children. And so just like they understood the, the family model, the king was the, the head of the national family, right? Now, n- no one that I've ever met looks at our presidents that way, any president, whether you like them or not, right? We don't think of, you know, it's, you know, Pa Obama or, you know, Pa Bush in the White House or whatever, Pa George Washington. Like, we talk about, I guess, as our founding fathers a little bit, but we still don't mean it in the same way as, like, we talk about our parents, but in the ancient world, that was really how they saw the kingdom, okay? It was, it was just, it was just their, their local model that they already used writ onto a national level. Does that make sense? Okay. Now, when you go to how they understood God, it actually works the same way. They envisioned God as a king sitting on a throne. They actually called God the king of kings. And Hebrew does this funny thing where if you want to emphasize something, you just say it twice. So king of kings just meant like the ultimate king, right? We have a book called the Song of Songs. It just means like the best song, right? Lord of Lords just means like the best Lord. That was, it was a, it's a way that that language emphasizes stuff, okay? So, so when they called God the king of kings, I mean, they, they meant it. They meant he's, he's the king over all of the kings, just like the, the earthly king would have been sort of like the father of all of the fathers, right? And then even in the house, the father is like the, the head over all of the heads. You know, your kids might have their own families, but you're the, you're the father of the fathers, right? And so, so you kind of just have this sort of like ballooning of this same model where it's all top down. There's always a person at the top who's the, the head over the nation, the family, whatever, and so the temple was the center of that whole everything. Like, and, and you actually can see this. If you can find maps of the ancient worlds, uh, whatever culture was right, like their temple was the thing in the middle, right? They didn't, uh, they, they, they understood that literally the whole world revolved around wherever God ruled from, which we can understand how that would make sense, right? And so the... Um, I think I have. I think I have some scriptures. Yeah. Okay. So there's some good. I, I actually want to do a couple of examples of this real quick. So in Genesis 13, which we've just we've just been introduced to Abram, Abraham, and God's made a covenant with him, and he took his family because he's the patriarch, right? He takes his family and follows God, and so his cousin Lot, or it's his, sorry, it's his nephew Lot comes with him. Abraham doesn't have any kids. Lot, at this point, the closest thing he has to a son, and so Lot goes with him. And there's a really interesting thing that happens in Genesis 13, which is that they both are so wealthy. You know, Lot has his people that are under him, and Abram has his people that are under him. And Lot's technically part of Abraham's house, right? But they both become so wealthy, and there's, there's too many, like, too many uh, cattle and sheep and all of this stuff. So there's not enough natural resources in the area where they've settled to sustain all of them. And so they're like their uh, shepherds and their herdsmen are fighting with each other and it's just getting out of hand. And so Abraham and Lot come together as like the two patriarchs and they just make a decision. 
And to us, it just seems like a little, like, oh, that's cute. They worked out their differences. But, like, this would have been the equivalent of, like, going to court together and figuring out, like, a legal decision uh, because that, that's what was, like, the legal system of their day. And so Abram and Lot actually, well, Abraham, as very kind patriarch, says, Lot, why don't you go that way and I'll go this way or I'll go this way. You choose where you want to go. And so Lot, because... You know, he was like a snot-nosed brat or whatever, chose the real good land. He was like, I'm going to go right over there where it's all green and nice. Uh, and then bad things happen a lot later. You can read about that in the rest of Genesis. Uh, but, but that I mean, the, the point of that is you see how this patriarchal system works, right? Um, the only time you would ever break up and the family would separate is in a time when natural resources dictate that you have to, when there's not enough there for a very prosperous family. Now, obviously, if Abraham had not been so prosperous, if he had been a poorer farmer, if he had only had a few uh, like heads of livestock or whatever, that wouldn't have been an issue, and they would have all just stayed together. And what dictated that the family split and what the, they kind of moved to different villages or whatever was a, was a resource problem. Okay, sorry, sorry, I meant to cover that one over here. Now, back to the ancient temple. Uh, what's interesting about so you have this you have the same kind of family model, right, where God is the Father, God is the King of Kings, uh, God is ruling is that the entire uh, world becomes God's temple, okay? And, and, and then this earthly temple becomes like a sort of microcosm of the, big te- of the, of the, earth, of the whole earth, right? It's like, it's like a, a representation or a model, right? Oh, when I was a kid, I loved putting together model cars, uh, and it would always tell you it's like 164th scale or whatever, and you put all the pieces, and I always gave up at the decals. But uh, everything else, like, it was so fun because you had you had this, like, little representation of a real thing, right? I mean, we, we understand how that works. And that was, that was how they understood the temple to be. And we're going to talk more about this in a couple weeks when we get to the covenants. But when, when they went to the temple to worship God, they, um, and you'll see this when we read these verses here in a second, they understood that they were going to the earthly representation of God's heavenly throne room. Okay, so because again, remember, God's a king, which is also like a father. And so the king has his divine court, and the king is making his proclamations and his rulings and running the kingdom from his throne room, just like the dad runs the house from the, you know, the gate or whatever. Right? And it's all, it's all just kind of stacking on itself, where, they, where, where basically we're looking at all this, as it, it's the same model over and over and over again. So uh, I, have, I think I put a couple of uh, verses there, one from Isaiah. So in Isaiah. 66, God says, heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool, right? Could you build me a temple as good as that? It's a rhetorical question. The answer is no. Could you build me such a resting place? My hands have made both heaven and earth, and they and everything in them are mine. I, the Lord, have spoken. Okay, and then in Psalm 132, we have a similar kind of statement. This is a, this is a song that the pilgrims would sing as they would be approaching the temple. So it'd be, you know, um, it would be sort of like if there was only one church in the whole United States, one building. That you, and so, like, we'd all have our, we'd all be doing our thing. But, like, you know, maybe once a year or maybe once every few years, we'd all say, hey, let's go to New York City and go to the, go to the church. Like, that was how the temple in Jerusalem was. So when they would do these big pilgrimages, it was a big deal. And they'd be celebrating all the way. It'd be like a big thing. And so they had all these songs that they would sing together as they would be journeying to the temple that were meant to prepare them and get them in a, the right kind of a mood. And this particular psalm is one of those. So listen to what it says. The mindset that it's helping them to get into as they're approaching the temple in Jerusalem. It says, Let us go to the sanctuary of the Lord. Let us worship at the footstool of his throne. 
Arise, O Lord, and enter your resting place, along with the ark, the symbol of your power. For the Lord has chosen Jerusalem. He has desired it for his home. This is my resting place forever, he said. I will live here, for this is the home I have desired. So we have there the footstool language again, right? There's, it's like God has his heavenly temple, which is the whole world. But then in this particular place, it's like his footstool. It's like, it's like the model. It's the, the earthly representation of this more cosmic reality. So anytime they were going to worship, that was, that was their attitude. And they're children. They're not just subjects. They're not just um, worshipers. But they're actually children going to, going to the, the father's house. And that's why over and over and over in the, in the scriptures, the temple is called God's house. We, we borrowed that language and we have often referred to the church that way, right? Um, that was why you're not allowed to run in church and stuff like that because it's God's house and God doesn't like running, I guess, or something. Um, so, okay, is that all? That's kind of like the background. That's like when, when an ancient person is thinking about the temple. That's how they're thinking about it, right? That this, is, that, that this is the earthly representation of a cosmic reality. And that God is, God, uh, like we talked about last week, right? God is the Lord over all other lords, the king over all other kings, the, the, the ruler of the entire everything, like all everything that exists. Uh, and we're going to this earthly representation of that to worship him. Okay? Good. All right. Now let's go to Genesis. Yeah. Forgive my drawings, they're kind of silly. But, uh, so, Genesis 1.1, we've talked about this the last couple weeks. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, a more grammatically correct way to translate that, which none of the translations do because we've said in the beginning, God created, if you change that, people would riot in the streets and stuff like that, right? But, uh, a better way, a better way to translate it, and it doesn't make any big difference. It's just kind of fun. Is I think I put this on your sheets. When be- God began to create the heavens and the earth, the earth was formless and empty, and darkness covered the deep waters, and the spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. So Genesis gives us this really interesting picture uh, of of creation, of the world, and that's what we're talking about. All right, the nature of stuff. In the beginning, you've got this formless and empty. Okay? It doesn't have any form, and then there's nothing. It's empty. And then you have God. I tried my best to do a trinity, a small trinity, right? You have God hovering over the surface of this stuff. Okay? And then what's going to happen over the next six days is God is going to form the formless and fill the empty. Okay? So God is taking the formless and empty and is giving it structure and content. Forming and filling. That's, that's the process of creation. And it's worth noting, though we're not going to do a lot with it tonight, it's, so stick it in the back of your head. We'll come back to it in another week. But it, it's interesting that God creates by speaking. Again, again, that's that king model, right? How does the king rule? By de- decree. The king decrees something, and then everyone makes it happen. And you see that same kind of regal model here, that God is speaking, and creation is happening. And so we're not going to read all of Genesis 1, though I would highly encourage you to do that this week. It's really interesting. If you want, you can draw pictures like I did, right? So in the first three days, God is forming, okay? Because remember, it's, just, it's formless and empty. And so in the first three days, God is forming. So the first thing God does, let there be light. Okay, and God creates light. And then he separates light from dark. Okay, so there's, that's a forming, right? There's, there, there, was, there was not light and dark, and now God's drawing boundaries, Okay? Then the second day, God creates the sky, and he separates the sky from the waters. So there's another, there's another boundary drawing, another forming. He's, he's shaping. It's almost, it's all, okay, this is a bad example. But it's almost like it's a lump of Play-Doh, 
or, or a sculpture or like a piece of rock and you're watching an artist like work on it. I don't know if you've ever done this before or like when, like a potter on a wheel and it just starts out as this like formless lump and, and you know that something's going to happen so you're just kind of watching it and you start guessing like is it a bull, is it a cup and at first you like you can tell something's happening but you, you don't really get a good sense of what it is but the closer they get it to being finished the more you're like oh you start getting and making the handle and eventually it's like totally clear what is being made that's sort of the the sense we're getting here, right? It's, it starts out as just this, like, not, well, nothing. You can't. Just, it's, it's, it's empty and it has no form. It's there. You can't do anything with it. It's just, it's just a mess. And as we move through, it's getting clearer and clearer what is being made. So on the third day, we get water and land. If you totally not clear from my drawing, but that's what I tried to represent here. Okay. <laughs> so again, more division, more, more separating, more, more forming. Right. So now, by the end of day three. The formless has been formed. We have this sort of empty space, but it's coherent. There's light and dark. There's air and sky. There's land and sea. Like, we have form now. We didn't, but we do. It's still empty, but at least it has form. So now, in days four through six, we're going to fill that in. So in day four, which was where we created the light and dark, now we have sun and moon and stars. We're filling the light and the dark, right? On day five, we're filling the sea and the air. So we get birds and fish. Right? And then all the other stuff that's in the, in the sea and in the air. Right? And then on day six, the last day, we're going to fill the land. So we get all of the land animals, and then we're, we get people. That's the last thing that's created. Okay? That all makes sense? Forming and filling? Okay. Now, here's where it gets really interesting and really cool. Remember that the ancient Israelites looked at creation as a temple. Right? The whole of creation was a temple. And so for them, when they see a, a, a bunch of formless muck that starts taking a shape, they're already expecting a temple because they, 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 this is the creation of the earth. Right? But for them, earth equals temple. Cosmic, cosmic temple, but temple. Okay? Well, in their world, I mean, people built temples all the time. Right? That was, everyone used temples to worship. And so the idea of building and dedicating a temple was a thing that everyone knew about. Sort of like we imagine our ribbon-cutting ceremony, right? When you know when you build a new building or breaking a bottle of champagne against a new ship. Like we have these same kinds of inauguration, dedication kinds of ceremonies. Well, the temple in all the different cultures had also had a, a normal temple dedication ceremony. And when the temple was finished, as you can imagine, huge celebrating, lots of big partying. And the last thing you did when you built a temple, part of this big celebration, the way you knew the temple was finished, was you took an image of the god and put it in the temple. And, that, and so, so what you're picturing here is the god is now living in the house that you built for him. Because you're building a temple, that's a house for God, right? And then the last thing you would do is you take your little idol of your God, whichever, you know, whichever God your people worshipped, you'd have a little idol of him, an image of him, and then you'd stick, or her, right, I guess, and you'd stick that in the temple. And that, I mean, you didn't just stick it in the temple, that sounded like really, oh yeah, we did it. Like, that's a, that's a big, you know, ceremony, you probably paraded it in and all this stuff. But that was how you finished the temple, okay? So, if I'm an ancient reader of this text... And I'm, I'm, I'm noticing, okay, it started out with must, but we're building a world, so I'm expecting a temple. We would expect this story to end with God putting an image of himself in the temple. Because that's how you finish a temple, right? Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. So, how does Genesis chapter 1 end? Well, I put it on the paper for you. God said, let us make human beings in our image to be like us. 
They will reign over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and the livestock and all the wild animals on the earth and the small animals that scurry on the ground. So, God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. Then God said, God, God blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and govern it, reign over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and all the animals that scurry on the ground. So, the, the way that we know that the creation story is finished, the way that we know that this cosmic temple has been completed, is that God creates an image of himself and puts it in the cosmic temple. But we, we are that image. Okay? Now that, that will matter, and we'll get to this more in the next couple weeks, but uh, if you know, like the Ten Commandments, for instance, does anyone, can anyone tell, I shouldn't, but anyone want to tell me what the second commandment is? Do you know it, Anyone? okay if you don't it's don't make images don't make any idols okay idol and image are the same thing right it's, it's a physical representation of god okay and god specifically says do not make any images of me any representations of me now why would god say that because god already made an image of him and that's us humanity is god's image so we're not to create we're not to demean what it means to be the image of god by creating something that's less than than us and beyond that, we talked about how everyone had temples and everyone put their images of their God in there. Does anyone know what, uh, was the, what took the place of God's image in the Hebrew temple? This, I don't expect you to. I'm just curious if anyone does. Yeah, the Ark of the Covenant. Okay. So, again, we'll talk about this more in a couple weeks when we get to covenants. But everyone who's ever seen Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark, right, I think it makes your face melt off if you open it. Um, there, there was an ark that God had built as a part of when he built the tabernacle and everything. And that ark had two uh, angel things on the top of it. We don't actually know what they looked like, but they probably were pretty sweet. And their wings pointed at each other. And that was what sat in the, the, holy, so the holy of holies in the temple, which we now know means the holiest place in the temple, right? Okay. Um, that sat in there, and that, in, in every other temple, in that part of the temple, that'd be where the image of the God sat. But we're not allowed to make images of this God, because this God already made images in humanity. And so this ark sat in there, and the physical presence of God dwelled on top of these uh, angels. And so it was called that, the, the lid of the Ark of the Covenant is often called the mercy seat, because literally they, that, like, that's where God's physical presence sat that's why you weren't allowed to go into the holy. That's what, one. That's why it was the holiest place because that's where that's where God is. That's by definition the holiest place. And then also that's why we were not allowed to go in there because, as we'll talk about next week, we were unholy, and uh, it was you had to be very careful when when people messed with the ark. Bad things happened. So, actually, we have time for this. I think one of my. I don't even. I didn't even look up where this. Somewhere in one of the kings. One of my. It's probably my second favorite story in the Old Testament. Uh, the Philistines capture the ark of the covenant. Okay, and they take it with them, and they take it into their temple, and they put it in front of their god, either Dagon or I forget what his name is off the top of my head, right? But they put it in front of the image of their god. I mean, so they have, they have an image of their god in their temple, right? And the next day they come back, and the image is, is like laying down like it's bowing to the Ark of the Covenant. And the Philistines are like, that's weird. And they set it back up, and they leave. And then the next day they come back and its arms and its legs are broken off and it's still laying down in front of the Ark of the Covenant. And they're like, we're going to send this back. 
So they put it on a cart with some cattle, and they like send it down the road, and they're like, well, if it doesn't make it back, uh, we tried, you know, and it makes it back, and the Israelites are very happy. But uh, again, to us, that just sort of seems like a little bit, of, I mean, it's a fun story, but a little bit of a silly story. But when you understand what temples were and how the images function and all of that, right, like that was, that was again, God asserting his ultimate authority. Uh, like, you know, you can capture the ark if you want. That doesn't change that I'm the God of all of the gods, right? I'm the God of gods. I'm the king of kings. I'm the Lord of lords. So, fun little story. Uh, I like it sometimes when it seems like God's a little bit, like, sarcastic. You know, he could have just, like, teleported the ark back or something like that. Okay, I just want to be clear. Yes. Okay, when you say image of God, are you meaning actual physical statues? Yeah, that's things? what they did. I mean, yeah, so okay, when we talk so about, like, idols. something like that right. was bad mm-hmm. because we are... We, we are the made, image of God. So yeah. Okay. Yep, yep. It's somewhere in one of the kings. I'll look it up. I should have looked it up. I didn't. I wasn't planning on talking about it. It just kind of popped in my head. It's in first or second kings somewhere. Uh, really, I mean, I like it when God's got a little bit of an attitude. And that's one of those places where, you know, he could have just teleported it back. But it says, he's like, I'm going to have a little fun with him. So, <laughs> um, uh, so a couple things that we should point to. Um, as we're talking about creation, I want to talk a little bit about the why of creation. Um, and which is, a, it sounds like a... a a weird question, I guess. Like, why did God? Why did God create stuff? Why did God put images of Him in creation? And and why do we have all of this good stuff? For instance, a great uh, question. One of my old Bible teachers asked us one time was, you know, uh, why does why does coffee? Well, maybe you don't all like coffee. Why does pizza taste good? Why does any food taste good? Right? Because let's be real. Food could all taste like dirt. And if all food tasted like dirt, we'd all eat it because we need food to stay alive. And we would. And we wouldn't know any different, actually. Right? So, why does it taste good? That seems frivolous. Okay? So, now here's what, here's what we can learn. This is, we'll pull out of the New Testament here. Paul, in Romans 1.20, I didn't put this on your sheets, so, so write it down. Romans 1.20, chapter 1, verse 20. Paul says, Ever since the world was created, people have seen the earth and the sky. And through everything God made, they can clearly see his invisible qualities, his eternal power and his divine nature. So they have no excuse for not knowing God. And Paul goes on in that chapter to say that the reason God gave us stuff, the reason God created things, and the reason God made them enjoyable was so that they would point us back to God. And actually he says the problem, he goes on in Romans 1, he's actually talking about sin, which we're going to talk about next week. He says the problem is we got so caught up in the thing that we missed the creator. You know, we, we, it's like we got a gift and we just turned around and we were like, oh, this is great. And we never even stopped to say, someone gave me this. Thank you. Right? Uh, why does food taste good? The psalmist tells us this, right? Psalm 34, 8, which I also didn't write down. But Psalm 34, 8 says, taste and see what? Anyone know? That the Lord is good. Not that food is good, but that God is good. Why does food taste good? Because God loves us and God wants us to know that. Right? Why any of you who have children? Why do you give your children presents? <laughs> you know, because because you, you love them, right? I'm not saying why do you buy them school clothes because they need school clothes, right? Why do you buy them presents? Why do you why do you do things for them you don't have to do? Because you love them. You want to show them that you love them. Same thing with us. That's why God created. So the the purpose, at least a purpose, of the world is that we would know God. That all of the things that we have point 
through themselves and back to God. Through the gift and back to the giver. Does that make sense? That's beautiful. Yeah. Right? Maybe, yeah, right? Or just like broccoli every morning, right? You'd be like, Mom, why do you... Oh, okay. But yeah, pancakes every day makes a difference. Yeah, right, 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 right. And you want you want to do these things. You want to do these things for you. And, the, and, and again, when we're talking about what it means to be created in the image of a God who is most basically a giver, a lover, a giver of the self, when we are living in that way, that's when we are really living in God's image. Right? When, we, when we understand the joy of giving and we are living and participating in that, that's when we're really fully experiencing uh, what it means to be a picture of God, an image of God. You know? So, that makes sense? Does it all make sense? Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, I want to make a, a quick note on the word dominion. Uh, in, in Genesis one twenty six, it said that God gives us rule over all of these things. And... Uh, this is a this is a text that some people have used as an excuse um, to to really justify like abuse and excess of creation, like taking advantage and not being not being thoughtful and mindful about how we treat animals, how we engage. I don't know, like just uh, like even like pollution and stuff like that. You know, I, there are Christians you can find them on the internet who will say like, oh, God gave it to us, and we do whatever we want with it. It says it right here. God gives dominion. And I would say to that, well, right before that, it said we were created in the image of God. And so if we, we do get to exercise dominion, right, but we exercise dominion, we exercise rule in the image of the king of kings. And so, yeah, as, as we enact these things, now, again, that doesn't particularly answer, you know, climate change or animal testing or any of these other complicated issues, but it should form how we approach them as Christians, we say, as we are exploring these questions, as we are engaging uh, these issues, we ought to be doing it uh, from an attitude of humility and an attitude of, of a desire to be good stewards of the power that we've been given. Because it's ultimately God's house, not our house, and we are God's honored guests and children. And so we, we can never, as followers of Jesus, get to a place where we become entitled where we think that God owes us these things, or where we just leave God out of the equation altogether and think, well, I earned this, or I got this for myself, and so it's mine to do with what I want with it. Because we are in God's image, in God's world. And so we are, we are, we are going to be accountable to our king and to our father for how we use the things that he has given us. And we can see that we are, we are given things to be givers ourselves, right? We're given things so that we can participate more fully in what God has done. Uh, see, a very famous quote from C.S. Lewis, he compares us to children who have received an allowance from our fathers to go buy him a present for his birthday, right? Like, God's not getting anything that's not already God's, right? But wh- again, if you've ever done that for your kid, why do you do that? It's because you want them to kind of experience how it's more blessed to give than to receive. And so you're happy to receive from them even if you gave them the money in the first place to buy it. Even if you drove them to the store and actually paid for it or whatever. Like, you're like, oh, this is, you know, you, it's so great. It's so great because that's not what it's about. It's not about, like, you needed socks or a tie or whatever. And so they went and bought it for you. It's about the act. It's about the, the economy of giving and receiving. And so the similar, uh, a similar sort of thing can and should be said about our relationship to creation uh, as people who are the image of God. Good? Are we good? That was a lot. You guys are awesome. Okay. Here we go. Next section. 
I'll just call it in your notes. It's the I get by with a lot of help from my friends. So we're going to jump to Genesis 2. Uh, there's there's a, a different kind of a little bit of a, a modification of the story of, of this is more the Adam and Eve stuff there. And the first one we just got uh, in God's image, male and female, and that was it. And we moved. So in this one, you kind of get a different sort of take on it. And again, you can read this whole story. Uh, many of you are probably already familiar with it. But I wanted to highlight a couple of things. So, so what happens in this one is God creates just the man. Okay? And then he says here in Genesis 2.18, The Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone, so I will make a helper who is just right for him. And then we, I skipped a few verses there for you, and it says, Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib that he took out of the man, and he brought her to the man. And the man exclaims, At last! This one, this woman that he is, or this this person, right? He hasn't called her woman yet, but she is bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, and she will be called woman because she was taken from man. Uh, now I want to make a couple comments here. First of all, totally as just a little side thing from what we talked about last week. Do you notice in there it says the Lord God and Lord is written in all caps? Okay. Now remember, whenever you see that in your English translations, that is the divine name. That's Yahweh. So in the Hebrew, that actually says Yahweh God, and it's a way of identifying which particular God we're talking about. So just, again, that's a fun little, there it is. You see it right there in the Hebrew te- or in the English translations. Anytime you see Lord in all capitals like that, that's God's actual proper name, Yahweh. Okay, and our English translation is just translated as Lord because uh, uh, we have a long interpretive tradition of doing that. But that, that, just so you know that, whenever you read that, that's, that's that. And if you see Lord, yeah. If that's the case, this is before Moses. Right. So last week, what we talked about was that at the burning bush is where Moses rec- or where humanity received the revelation of God's name. So what you'll see is if you read from here all the way to Moses is that humans never know to call God Yahweh. So the text written after Moses receives the divine name calls him that often, but like Adam and Eve don't know that that's his name. Uh, Noah doesn't know that. Anytime, anytime humans are talking about God, they're still going to call him God up until Moses. It's not an yeah, Patty. How do you know that? Uh, it, it's just what we read in the scriptures. I mean, but if they use the Lord God, Yahweh, in Genesis, what, is it because this was written? Right. After, it, this was written after Moses, the burning bush. So that's right. Why right. He's right. Yeah, and and right, and th- and this is. I mean, again, this isn't this isn't something I just made up. This is like going back to rab- Jewish rabbis all the way back. Celebrate the burning bush as the the first time in human history that humans get to know God's name. And so, yeah, now from the perspective of, uh, uh, of later history, like when they're going back and writing about this, they're going to you, they're going to write God's name, but the people they're writing about, not, it's probably not a good example, not too unlike if you're reading like a mystery story or like uh, you're watching CSI or something and you know who the killer is, but all the people in the story don't. But like the way they told the story is you already have the information. And so there's, you're sort of just watching how they figured, I mean, that's not a great example, but you know, that's, or Col- who, Columbo, right? We got to have a few Columbo fans in here, right? Didn't that how Columbo, you always, you always saw the person commit the murder. So the fun isn't the who done it. The fun is figuring out how Columbo figures it out and then makes them all look silly. Uh, so... So, I mean, it is a sort of like that. I mean, obviously different because we're talking about God and the divine name. That's a little more important than Columbo, but uh, sort of that kind of an idea. So does that make, does that make sense, Beth? Yeah. 
And Patty, good, okay, cool. G- g- very good question. I was wondering if anyone was going to catch that, so good job. <laughs> yeah? Is that, is that why then when Abraham was visited by God, he conceived it as an angel? Yeah, well, yeah, and that's, that's a whole other tricky thing. So, yeah, Genesis 15, I think, it's, I think that's in Genesis 15. It's 15 or, yeah, I think it's 15. Uh, Abraham has these three people visit him, and he thinks that they're angels. Now, here's the tricky thing about angels. And if you, if you really study the Old Testament clearly, you're going to get confused about this. Genesis 3, or uh, sorry, Exodus 3 of the burning bush is another great example. When, it first, when, when Moses first sees the bush, it says an angel of the Lord spoke to Moses from the bush. But then a few verses later, it just the angel is gone, and it's just the Lord speaking to Moses from the bush. Okay, so the word that gets translated angel is a Hebrew word that just means messenger. Okay, and in the in the temple kingdom throne room kind of a thing, you all probably have experienced this in other history classes, right? When a king sent a messenger, the messenger spoke with the voice of the king, right? He spoke as the king. And how you treated the messenger, you, however you treated the messenger is how you were treating the king. So if you, you know, offered him a drink and gave him something to eat and treated him hospitably, it was like you were doing that to the king. And if you, like, killed him and sent his head back in a box, it was like a declaration <laughs> of war. I mean, really, I mean, really this, is how, this is how this worked, right? And it's the same sort of, again, because we're using the same kind of model, this, like, throne room, divine throne room model. When the angel, the messenger, appears to people, it's speaking... For the Lord. And so you'll often see that initially it says an angel of the Lord, but then the word angel just is gone and it's just the Lord speaking because as far as they were concerned, it is the Lord speaking. And it doesn't matter if there's some other being that's mediating this message, just like it didn't matter if there was a messenger speaking for the king, like it's the king, you listen around. I mean, you know, if you disobey the king's messenger, you're disobeying the king. Is that so. the same situation when Jacob wrestled that angel? Thousands and thousands of books have been written about that question. Maybe, right? We don't know. Um, and, and I'm telling you, this is why angels are so fascinating to us, is because they're clearly agents in the scriptures, but there's just not much information about them. Okay? But they show up and they disappear and they're here and they're there. And, and there's never, like, we would like a book called, like, Angels. And it just was like, verse 1, chapter 1, here's what an angel is, and here's all the things it does, and here's what it can do and can't do, and here's all the time. You know, we would love something like that in the scriptures. We don't get it. You know, so they're just these, they're these beings that the biblical writers were not particularly concerned with because what really mattered to them was how God is using them and the message that they're conveying and stuff like that. And so the rest of us today are just left to scratch our heads and go, sure, it would be nice if we had a little bit more information about those things. But until then, we get to write lots of fun fictional books making up stuff. And, you know, it's, there's lot, lots, of, lots of dreaming and wondering about what angels are. And we get touched by an angel and highway to heaven and, you know, all those kinds of books. So, and the TV shows and all that, so. But yeah, we don't know. We don't know. That's the short answer to your question. Good. Any any other questions about any of that? Good. All right, good. Uh, let's talk about, oh, yeah, let's go back to helper. So talk about how the Lord, that means Yahweh. That's what was right. Okay, so um, God says it's not good for the man to be alone, so I'm going to make him a helper. Okay, now, the word helper is a really bad translation of this word. Uh, but like every every English translation uses it. I don't know why, but they all do. Uh, and it's funny because you read commentaries, and every commentary says this is not a good word to use. Like, but like, so I don't know why the commentators and the translators can't get together and make a, a deal, but they don't. Um, the word 
Uh, the reason the reason it's a bad the reason it's a bad term is because when we hear helper, we sort of think sidekick, right? Mm-hmm. Like the the implication is that the guy was like almost okay, like he's like 90, 95% okay. He just needed like a little, little help. Right? Just a little help. He just needed some help. Um but that's not well, and the thing about it, we individualistic Americans who like to think that we got everything handled on our own and we're okay and we don't need anyone else, we like the translation. Right? We like it. It's not good that the man's only needs a little help. We're like, yeah, we, we just need a little help. The problem is, when you read all of the other places in the Old Testament that this word is used, it definitely doesn't just mean sidekick. Uh, it's actually used of God many times to talk about how God helps Israel, and it's usually like saving Israel or rescuing Israel. It's also used of foreign kings who are allies of Israel, who Israel is going to lose, and then their help showed up help them out just a little bit, save them. I mean, so it really is a stronger word than, than helper. It's really more like, I, I actually enjoy translating it ally because that has more of like a, like kind of an equal sound. Uh, a good friend of mine uh, named Tom, who's an, a, a fellow pastor, uh, he, he translates it uh, as um, loyal opposition because pr- here... What, Mike? <laughs> oh, we're going to come back to that giggle here in a second. Um, uh, right here, the word, uh, the word helper, it's actually paired with another word. The two Hebrew words are azer, which is that helper word that means ally a lot of times. And there's another word, konegdo. I'll write it down for you because I'm sure some of you, some of you want to write it down. It doesn't really matter a whole lot. but um, And so azer is that helper word, but then konegdo means to oppose. So it's opposing <laughs> helper, or it's an opposing ally, right? And so that's why my friend Tom calls it the loyal opposition. Now, I assume at least Mike has heard of this term. Have any of you heard of this? It's usually a political term, right? Okay, you've heard this? And it was actually, it was actually coined in the British Parliament, and it was a way of saying that a person can be loyal to the country while they are opposing the particular wishes of the current party in power. Okay. Okay? So they're the loyal opposition. They're loyal, but they're opposing you right now. Does that make sense? Okay? Like a wife and husband. Yes, which is why it's used here. Okay? Now, the reason, the reason that I like that translation for this term is because it implies... Uh, when we use it even in politics, right, it implies that humans are fallible. It implies that you can think you're doing the right thing, but not actually be fulfilling the ideals you think you're fulfilling. That's why you can still be loyal but opposing, right? And so it's, it, in other words, it's po- <laughs> this is a newsflash for everyone, it's possible for us to be wrong, right? What? I know. Not for you, just me. Um, <laughs> so to claim... That I, as a human, require a loyal opposition is to claim exactly what God observes in Genesis 2. It's not good for the man to be alone. He needs a loyal opposition. He needs an Azer Konegdo, a helper. See, that's why it's not a good translation. It means, that, it means that we're insufficient by ourselves. It means that we can't live up to our full potential, which is to be the image of God in the world, a picture of God in the world. That's what we are created to be. Right, that's our that's our place in the in the creation, and and it implies that we can't be that on our own. It's not good for the man to be alone. He needs a loyal opposition. He needs an azer connecto. 
And, and again, we actually, in Genesis 1, we saw that, right? Because to be the image of God requires at minimum two people, right? It, it needs a male and a female. That was how God created the original image. So we can't, like, he didn't say, I, I created the image of God, created Adam. Eh, we should probably have an Eve, right? No, it was like they were together from the beginning. From the beginning, that's what the image of God is. It requires more than one person. And that should not surprise us overly, I think, because God is fundamentally communal. That's what the Trinity is. It's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's three in one who are all constantly giving to each other. So how could one possibly be a full image of God? So why didn't he do it both at the same time? You want my honest read on it? Yeah. <laughs> well, let's unpack it a little bit. So, so I skipped over some verses there. What happens is God makes the man. And then he says, it's not good. It's not good for you to be alone. I'm going to make an Ezra Konegdo for you. I'm going to make a loyal opposition. And then God creates all of the animals and brings them to the man to name them. Okay? Now, it's, that's, that's a whole other side tangent cool thing because what's happening in the, in the forming is God is naming things, right? Separating light from dark and calling the light day and the dark night and all this. You know, separating the sky and the sea. And this, you know. So naming is, is a creative act that God's inviting the man into. But you got like, you got to wonder how long it took the the man to catch on, right? Like two, what dogs? You know, two elephants, two of this. Like you just wonder, like, like at what point was he like? I think I see where this is going, right? So he gets to the end, and it says, and I don't know how long it took him to name everything, right? But like at the end is like no suitable Ezra Konegdo was found, no suitable loyal opposition was found. You got to figure Adam. Hopefully, it was smart enough to figure out what's coming next, right? But I think there's, I think there's some level of, um, of that, of that sort of thing going on, where uh, you're, you're really demonstrating that, you know, it, particularly with the animals, everything else has these sort of pairings, and he doesn't, and so then he's put to sleep, and he's, you know, the rib, and yeah. When you say that you needed two to be the image of God. Yes. You're leaving, I mean, I don't see, I feel that you're leaving out the Trinity, which is really three. Well, this is where, if we're going to press on that a little bit, I'm sure most of you have heard this sort of analogy before too, but a, a healthy marriage is not just two. It's the third. Right. It's, it, God has to be in the middle of all of that as well. And so that would be, again, where, where unless God is present in our relationships, we're still not full. Like, we can have, we can have very good two-way relationships, but they really, we, like, we really do need that third component. And also, while these texts are clearly about marriage, like we even have a marriage formula at the end of Genesis 2 where it says the man, for this reason the man leaves his father and mother and is united with his wife too. I mean, it's very clearly about marriage. I don't think it's just about marriage. Uh, particularly when you get into the New Testament, you see that community is something that everyone needs. There, there's, um, and, and beyond that, that community can be found beyond only the marriage relationship. Paul was single his entire life, but I don't think most of us in here would say that the guy that wrote half the New Testament was like insufficient. He obviously was in community within the body of Christ, right? And so I think it, I think it's about marriage, but I think it's also lar- more largely about that we as humans need other humans. Like there's no such thing as a lone ranger uh, person. I mean, even even the lone ranger had Tonto, right? I mean, that's that's even, even in our best. Lone Ranger myth, we know that you had to have someone else. Um, so I, I think it's I think that there's a lot of layers to that. And and back to your original question, I think that most importantly, we have to have 
a relationship with God. Uh, a lot of pastors will talk about it as like, we have to have vertical relationships and horizontal relationships. And, and without both of those, uh, we aren't full as humans. We aren't fully, completely what we were created to be. So, what about body, soul, spirit as being the image of God? Yeah, uh, yeah I think that that's also good. Um, I, you know, you also, yeah, you have heart, soul, mind, and strength. You have, yeah, there's a lot of different. And I think, I think, and I think they all work. Yeah. Yeah. So the issue is, you know, there is there, when you're talking about us needing community and us needing other people and not being whole on our own, you also have to be careful not to get into codependency relationships and saying like, you, you know, you need other people and you can't be healthy. Like you, there is also a sense where you have to be a, a whole person and and this is actually where the trinity helps us out right we don't say that the father the son and the spirit are like three half people we say that they are three and they are one and i think that has to be the same model for our relationships we have to be whole in and of ourselves and i think the body soul spirit kind of thing helps us chart that out a little bit and, and think about what that might look like to be a whole person uh but we also must be in community with each other and it's not it's not one or the other it's both. It's both and. You know, if you're in community with other people, but you're not trying, you're not seeking wholeness in yourself. You're in for a world of pain. And I think most of us have been in enough unhealthy relationships to be able to, you know, agree with that. But also, if you're only whole in and of yourself, and you're not giving yourself in relationships to other people the way you were created to, you're gonna you're gonna be insufficient again. You're gonna be unhealthy. So you have to have both of those things. And I, again, I think the Trinity helps us chart all of those out. So, yes, I, I agree with you. That was a long way to say that. <laughs> Good. Any other thoughts, questions? we got a couple more things. We're doing so well. Okay, you guys are doing great. Uh, okay, so what I, what I really want to spend a little bit of time on, and this is something we're going to be coming back to again and again through this whole thing, is where does this all go? Because, again... You can see that, like, just like we talked about, you're, we're building something, right? The, the, the clay on the wheel is taking shape. Uh, the, 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 this all, by the time we get to day six and we put the image in the temple, it's all done. And so the question, it's sort of, it's sort of a rhetorical question at this point because we've been answering it the whole time, is, well, now that it's done, what do we do with it? Right? I mean, did, did, we, just, did we just build it so that it's there? You know, did I, did I just make this mug on this potter's wheel so that I can have it? Or are we going to use it, right? And again, today, in our uh, relatively wealthy culture, I guess we create art for the sake of creating art. But for the most of human history, you didn't just make something so that it sat on a shelf. Uh, you, you made things to use them. And, and again, I think we have a sense of that too, right? Uh, if, if you're going to make something, if you're going to put it together, you're going to put all that time into it, it's, it's for something. There's a purpose behind it. Um, there's, there's a reason for it. And so the same thing here. Once the cosmic temple is done, once we are living in God's house as God's children and as God's honored guests, well, now what? Right? It's not like God goes back and does the whole six-day process over and over and over. Like, it's, it's done. It's finished. It's time to do something with it. And so uh, Genesis chapter 2. See, this is, uh, again, a little side mini rant here. This is where the versing and the chapters really get in the way of stuff. Those were put in by Archbishop Usher and I think like the um, somewhere between 13 and 1600, which I know is a really broad amount of time. He lived in there somewhere uh, and he put those all in later. And so sometimes he did a really good job and it makes a lot of sense. Other times like this, it makes no sense at all. I don't know why he broke it after day six and had day seven 
in chapter two. It would have made much more sense to finish day seven with chapter two than have, uh, have gone from there. But he didn't do it that way. And so for ages since then, Christians have just sort of left day seven off and just did the six days and that's it. But really, again, like now that the temple's done, we want to ask what next. And day seven is what happens next. So let's read it. Chapter two of Genesis, verses one through three. So the creation of the heavens and earth and everything in them was completed. On the seventh day, God had finished his work of creation, so he rested from all of his work. And God blessed the seventh day and declared it holy because it was the day when he rested from all of his work of creation. Uh, again, we're going to be coming back to all of this a lot. But the, the purpose of all of this is, is what, we, what we call the Sabbath day. And um, in, the, uh, in the Old Testament, really in like rabbinic tradition and even a lot of the early church fathers... What you see is that the purpose of the Sabbath day is the concept of shalom, which many of you will probably recognize as the Hebrew word for peace. But the reason a lot of scholars like to use the word shalom is because when we hear the word peace in our heads, it kind of is the same thing as when we hear the word rest, like God rested on the seventh day. It's like, oh, he like worked really hard for six days and he was tired, so he just had to take a little nap. So he rested on the seventh day. And when we hear the word peace, we kind of think of the same thing. We're like, when you say, what's peace? You're like, peace is like when no one's fighting. Right? That's peace. And we're like, well, okay, that might be peaceful. Yeah. But really, in the Hebrew world, rest and peace were much bigger concepts than that. Uh, one of my favorite scholars talks about rest as the, uh, ses- uh, basically, as the cessation of all the things that you have to do so that you can do the things you want to do. Okay, so this is an example. How many of you would consider yourselves like fairly organized people? Like in, more like administrative, I mean, it's okay. It's not a value judgment, I'm not, okay? If you go to my office right now, you will see that it is piled, my, my desk is piled high with lots and lots of clutter. And if you were to my home office, you would see a similar scene, okay? Um, what happens to me sometimes though, and I don't know when the mood strikes or why, but sometimes I will come into my office and I will be ready to work and I will look at the giant pile of clutter on my desk and I'll be like paralyzed. And I will feel that I can't actually work until I clean off my desk. And so I'll go through the whole process of organizing and piling and putting things away. Does anyone, has any, any of you know what I'm talking about? Some of you who are neat, you don't understand this because you're always organized, okay? But some of the, the more messy among us, you will feel me, all right? So, so my point in all of that is this. Sometimes there are things that you have to do so that you can do the things that you want to do. I want to work at my desk, but first I have to clean it. I have to organize it. I have to arrange it. I have to take this giant pile of chaos, this formless and shapeless and empty mess, and I have to impose order on it. I have to get it to a place where it is a place where I can get work done. And once I have, and that's work, unquestionably. It's a lot of work to organize my clutter because I do a pretty good job of cluttering things, okay? But once I have done all of that work, I can now do a different kind of work. And it's the work that I actually enjoy and the work that I actually wanted to do in the first place, okay? So does that make sense, that distinction? So when we're talking about shalom, when we're talking about Sabbath, what we're talking about is a creation where everything is in its proper place, where everything is the way God intended it to be and everything can function the way God wanted it to. And so... uh, it's, it's sort of, I guess it would be kind of like if you can imagine vacation, not a staycation where you're just doing like yard work and stuff like that, but a, a vacation where you load the kids in the car and drive to the beach and you exhaust yourself 
for a weekend or a week or whatever, but it's the best kind of exhaustion. It's totally different from that like Friday fuzz that you can't even like see through by the end of a work week. It's that like you've been living life to the fullest and you've been with people that you love and you've been doing things that give you energy and, and you're, you're exhausted, but at the same time you just have all that energy because you've been doing what you just, what makes you feel alive. Maybe that's not going to be true, maybe it's something else. But you know, you know what I mean, right? Those kinds of activities. There are certain kinds of activities that are a lot of work, but they're a lot of fun. And that's, that's more of the picture of shalom and of rest that we have in the scriptures. It's not that God is napping on the Sabbath. It's not that God's taking the day off because he's had a long work week. It's that now, finally, creation is in such a state that God and his children can enjoy it together. Does that make sense? Okay, and that's, that is the biblical ideal of shalom. That is the biblical idea of Sabbath. And so what we're going to see, spoilers for next week, is that this does not last very long, right? And that the whole rest of the story of God is getting us back to this place. So in week nine, when we get to the, the doctrines of last things, and we see where all of this is going, there's going to be some fantastic and really, really cool similarities to this week. Because what, what we're getting, essentially what's happening here is we're, we're mo- we, let's say this, you aren't even going to have to come next week because I'm going to spoil it all. We're ruining things. Sin destroys. Sin brings death. Sin brings disorder. And God is constantly moving us towards shalom, towards life, towards the way that things are supposed to be. Anytime we talk about God's will, this is, I mean, this is God's will, right? When we talk about how, how else can we talk about God's will than things being the way they were meant to be? That's, that's what that means. And so we're moving towards peace, rest. And not peace and rest in just like cessation of activity. Not peace and just like, well, it doesn't seem like anyone's fighting with anyone else right now. Right? But that, that fullness of life. Okay. We good with that? Okay, I want to do some so what real quick. Because this, this is all really big kind of abstract stuff. Um, First of all, there's a tendency in some Christian theology to think that the earth is, well, we're not really sure what it is, because we think that after we die, we're going to leave our bodies, and our souls are going to go somewhere else, and they're going to stay there forever, and sometimes there's wings and harps involved, and, and then earth is going to, well, we're not sure, because heaven is, heaven is somewhere else. And this is whatever this is. And what the, what the doctrine of creation affirms is that matter is really good. And that creation is God's plan. It's not an accident. It's not an afterthought. It's not a stopgap. It's not a byproduct. This is the plan. Uh, if you don't believe me, don't worry. I have seven more weeks to convince you. And we're going to be talking, we're coming back to this a lot, and particularly when we get to the doctrine of the last things, but I'll spoil it for you now. In Revelation 21 and 22, when we see the vision of the end, the vision of the end is we not, we all leave earth and go to heaven. It's heaven comes down to earth, and God is living with humanity on earth. Okay, now again, we have no idea what that's going to look like, and we can dream and paint pictures and write books and guess. But there is, a, there is an affirmation in the end of the scriptures that we will have physical bodies that are going to be sweet and that we're going to live on a physical earth with God. And from the beginning, that's been the plan. 
And so whatever else is going to happen in between that, you know, the time when we die, between when we die and the resurrection, we don't know. Again, there's lots of guesses that we can make and stuff like that. But whatever, at, the, at, at, the, at the minimum, we can affirm that creation is good and that our bodies are good and that God has plans for them. And that actually the purpose of creation is so that we would know God's love more fully and be oriented more fully towards God and that we would be able to participate in the life of God by being givers ourselves. Can we go back to the Garden of Eden? Yes, except this time it's a city. <laughs> but yeah, the, yeah. So the notion of when you die and you go to heaven is not correct. Ah. Here's what we know. We die... And at one point, at some point, we're resurrected. Okay, at the end, we, you know, Jesus comes back, we're resurrected. Now, there's this in-between state that there's some debate about. Okay, some people uh, ascribe to a theory called soul sleep, which is basically it's not what it sounds like. We're just asleep, and we wake up at the end, and so it's like you know, it's like when you go to bed and you wake up, and it's never been enough hours. You're like, oh, I gotta sleep. <laughs> Seems like I just went to sleep. Uh, Sort of like that. Now, um, and there are some scriptures that speak to that. Like there's a place in First Thessalonians where Paul talks about those who have been asleep in Christ or the first raised and this kind of stuff. Uh, but there's other places where Paul, thanks Paul a lot for being unclear, uh, says things like, I, is it better for me to be here with you or at home with the Lord? Right? And so it seems like, again, there's some people that think, well, when you die, your soul goes to, to heaven to be with God. But it's still temporary. It's still temporary. Like, so even, if, even though you're there, there's that point at the end when Jesus comes riding back on the white horse and all of the saints are with him, right, that we all return. And so, take your pick. <laughs> I mean, I mean, like, there's, there's real, I mean, I have my own thoughts about what it is, but they're just as much a guess as any other scholar, right? I mean, there's, there's really great scripture on both sides of it. Uh, we're just really not sure. And again, what we are sure about is that there is a resurrection of the dead. We will get resurrection bodies, and we will live in a physical creation with God. Renewed, restored, cleansed of evil. I mean, all, all of that stuff, right? Um, I, per, yeah, perfected body. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so yeah, so the question is, what happens? So this is if if you want if you want if you want your brain to hurt worse than it already does, okay? Read First Corinthians fifteen this week. Okay, this is where Paul really dives into the resurrection. It doesn't answer a lot of questions for you. I'm just going to warn you in advance, but it does talk about this, okay? Because the Corinthians were saying there is no resurrection. The Corinthians are saying this is the only life you get, so live it up, eat, drink, and tomorrow we die. Do whatever you want. Paul's like, well, y'all slow down. Okay, now when he talks about resurrection bodies, he says because they're asking, they're like, okay, Paul, you're saying we get resurrected? What? What? How? I mean, same questions we're all asking, right? And Paul says, okay, to compare the bodies that we have now to our resurrection bodies is like comparing a seed to the fruit. You know, if you look at an apple seed and then you look at an apple, you would have no idea that one comes from the other, right? And he says, what happens is the seed dies and is buried in the ground, and then a new life is raised. And he says, it's the same kind of thing with our resurrection bodies. Our bodies are planted in the ground. This is a metaphor at this point, right? But, and then when we are raised, we're raised in glory. And he's really vague, probably because he had about as good an idea as we do, uh, of what that glory looks like, right? But he says it's going to be just like Jesus. When Je- I mean, when Jesus came back, he came back in a physical body. His tomb was empty. And it, the, the, the Gospels go to great lengths to assure us that this was not a ghost, 
but this was a physical body. Because when the disciples go, are you just a ghost? He's like, no, stick your hands in my nail holes. And they were like, that's gross, we believe you. Um, so, no, I mean, they actually touched him and stuff, right? Um, so so we know that it's, we know they're physical bodies. We know that, I mean, Jesus' body still bore the crucifixion scars. So, I mean, in, in, they have some sort of corollary with our, I mean, with our bodies but at the same time, like, he could walk through walls and all kinds of crazy stuff that I tried to do and cannot do, right? So uh, we also, and that's, that's Paul's point. Is he's like, we don't know. It's like, it's like looking at an apple seed and trying to guess what grows out of it. Like, I think it's a foreshadowing. Exactly. Very much so. Very much so. And, and, and again, what, what matters for Paul is that the resurrection is physical and that it's real. And that just like, and that's, that's why he's, I mean, he even says in 1 Corinthians 15, if Christ was not raised from the dead, then we're all a bunch of fools, because we're giving ourselves over to something that's not real. So, like, it actually matters that Jesus wrote... See, I'm spoiling the whole class, but that's okay. We'll come back to all but this you, stuff. But you know that the concept of the Sabbath from creation makes sense, that our bodies rest, too. Mm-hmm. And even at the rapture, there may be a rest period for those who were mm-hmm. still alive at that time mm-hmm. to get that rest before the new kingdom right. comes in. It just... It, well, and this is, we'll get to this, we'll spend a lot of time on this when we get to the week on Jesus himself, but the Gospels, particularly the Gospel of John, tre- so, so it's, uh, all, all, this is another little aside that is necessary, the Sabbath day is not Sunday, the Sabbath day is Saturday, okay, this is why our calendars start on Sunday, Sunday is the first day of the week, um, now, the reason this is confusing for us is because the Jewish Sabbath being on Saturday is the day that the Jewish people rest, right? Now, when the early Jesus was raised from the dead on Sunday, and so early Christians started celebrating Sunday as and they would call it the Lord's Day. Okay, because that's when the Lord was raised from the dead. Uh, then that got all muddled up because we took two days off and invented the weekend and everyone got a lot happier and right, all of that. But so, so because we took two days off to commemorate, they kind of got muddled in people's minds and we confused the Sabbath and the Lord's Day. But they're actually two different days. Now, here's why that matters and it's not just like so you can show off to your friends. Uh, Jesus was raised from the dead on a Sunday. And the way the Gospel of John, pre- uh, the Gospel of John starts out in the beginning was the word. Okay, and so it, fra- and that's not an accident. John intentionally frames his gospel as a creation story. Okay, and so Jesus being raised from the dead on the first day of the week means that the resurrection is the first day of the new creation. Okay, again, we're we're gonna spend a lot. We're gonna spend a whole week on this. Okay, but uh, back to your point, Faith. Right, that that there is this idea that death is only a Sabbath rest. It's only a it's only a temporary. Thing, and we all are being recreated, right? Even the earth itself will be recreated and be freed from the, the burden of sin, which we'll talk about next well, week. God yeah. even gave uh, Solomon rest in his kingdom right. because David had gone through so many things. Right. There was peace right. in the kingdom. Yeah, all, and, and, and the thing, the reason we're spending so much time on two chapters of Scripture is because this is laying foundational work for everything that's going to come after this. Uh, when we get into sin next week, you'll see it. When we get into the covenants the week after that, you'll see it. When we get into Jesus, you'll see it. You'll be so sick of the Old Testament at that point, you'll be rolling your eyes. But it's real cool. Okay, a couple more things, uh, and then we should have time for a couple more thoughts. So you guys are doing awesome tonight. Um, so first, it's all about the physical world. The, the, you can't get away from the affirmation of the physical world being good. Second, uh, we as humans are fundamentally communal. 
We need each other to be a perfect image of God. There's, a, there's an important sense in which we are essentially incomplete. That we cannot be whole without relationships with each other and without relationships with God. We were created to give and to receive. Which again, that's, that's who God is. So being in God's image, that's what that means. I mean, we've just actually been beating this into the ground. But uh, God's design is for shalom. Right? For a world that is where everything is in order, where everything is formed and filled, so to speak, where everything is, is the way God uh, designed it to be. And the important part of that, we're going to really spend a lot of time on that next week when we talk about sin, is that when we don't, when we don't strive for that in our lives is when we experience pain. You know, when we, when we try to do things on our own terms, when we live life without regard for God and for God's way. That's, that's, when, that's when things begin to fall apart. That's when things slide away from order and back towards formless and empty. Make sense? Okay. Any other closing thoughts or comments or questions? Yep. Nick? Our story is for Samuel Jackson. Oh, there we go. Thank you very much. First Samuel chapter 5, not even in the Kings at all. Okay, so the ark that we're talking ark about of the covenant. Of, that we see on the, on the Indiana Jones yes. one, right? Yep. Okay, so why do we have Noah's ark? Why is there an ark and then right. there's an ark? What's the... And if, I, if you want to be even more confused, there's a third ark, uh, <laughs> Moses' ark, <laughs> which you haven't heard about because it's a basket. Okay. So the word, it's just... Why don't Noah's ark? Yeah, you know Noah's Ark. Big boat. Big boat. Well, and it's it's actually the reason that the writers use the same words is because they wanted to connect these things thematically. What you're seeing when you see that kind of an ark is you're seeing how God honors his covenants and preserves his people. So in Noah's Ark, the flood destroyed everything except for the people that God was protecting. The basket that Moses is put in when he's a baby and put on the river to be saved from the Egyptians, the same word they use there is not word the word basket, it's the word ark. So he's put into an ark. Okay. And then the Ark of the Covenant is how God preserves. So uh, this is how God preserves his people, both through being living among them in a, in a physical presence. And then uh, if you know, this is actually why the Nazis wanted the Ark is because in Indiana Jones is because uh, any army that carried when the Israelites carried it into battle, they could not be defeated. Okay, because it's protection, right? It's God protecting his covenants and his people. So that's why that word gets used in all those different contexts. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Right. Rescue. I mean, protection, rescue. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Protection. Yeah. And so what, and so what we'll see, when, so what's going to happen, guys? I'll give you a little preview the next couple weeks. Next week, we're going to talk about sin, about how, the, how this falls apart. The week after that, we're going to be talking about the covenants, the various covenants God makes. So we're going to hit Moses. We're going to hit Noah. We're going to go back to Abraham a little bit. going to get up through David. And then what we're going to do when we get to Jesus is we're going to see how Jesus is basically the fulfillment of all of these different Old Testament stories. They're all going to come together in the person of Jesus. So not only is he a new creation, but he's the new Noah, he's the new Adam, he's the new Moses, he's the new Abraham, he's the new David. I mean, all of these, all of these covenants that God has been making, we'll talk about covenants and all that, right? But it all comes and, into, into fullness in the person of Jesus. And so all of these, all of these instances of rescue, of salvation, of protection, all reach their fullness in who Jesus is and what Jesus does. So it's, it's going to be cool. But we got, we got to get there. So 
Right. Okay, uh, I want to pray for us uh, so that uh, those of you who need to leave on time can get out of here. If you want to stick around and chat, you know, I love doing that. So uh, let's pray together and then we can uh, be dismissed. God, we are thankful for this world that you have created for us. We're thankful that food tastes good, that hugs feel good. Uh, we are thankful that music sounds great. Uh, we are thankful for all of these different ways that we can experience your love uh, that point us back to you. And that remind us that we're created in your image and that we will never be fully human until we are participating in that life with you. Until we are receiving from you and giving to other people and worshiping you and loving others uh, the way you have taught us to. So as we go this week, let us be mindful of the world around us. Let us remember that these are all good gifts that should point us back to you. And let us celebrate and imagine how we can be givers the way you are a giver. We love you and we thank you for all of these gifts and we pray these in the name of your son, Jesus. Thank you, everyone. Uh, we'll see you next week for the Doctrine of Sin. It'll be a real upper, so uh, get excited. And, uh, <laughs>